I've always thought my problems were unique, and that I was uniquely plagued by them. Then I had it worse than everyone else around me. Woe has always been me. However, there's a certain value in thinking that. The narcissism that it carries often fuels tiring projects that last days, weeks, and on occasion months. The narrative that I am the only one suffering this plight has propelled me. I've learned to embrace the discomfort, and perhaps it's the generation of social media where everyone is seemingly having the time of their lives except for me. Everyone has to deal with air conditioners breaking down in the middle of the summer, and needing new tires, and not being able to make it to an important meeting on time, and making one significant other upset, and the list goes on and on. Over the past few weeks, recording these podcast episodes, I've learned that my problems are not unique. Life is. And has been a struggle for a lot of people. Some handle it with a little more grace than others, but everyone faces challenges in some way. It's been an absolute honor to know that people feel comfortable sharing exceptionally private details, not just with me, but with the listening audience at large. In today's episode, Luli Marks. An English professor at the Boca campus shares some very personal stories, and how seeing the obstacles she has faced in her life as mere interruptions has changed her outlook. It's been fantastic to hear the different journeys that my colleagues have taken to the um, to get to Palm Beach State, and um, and I see so many. Threads that are common,、um, you know, careers that were going one way and then changed. Like I could almost draw like a Venn diagram at this point. You know, people who thought they were going to medical school, you know, and,、um, and it's just it's been great. So I'm happy to share my story. And yes, I have a lot to share. So、um, let me start from the beginning. I guess I was born on July 3, 1976, and I'm telling you that because I missed. The, the bicentennial by hours,、um, and that was you know that could have been a big deal, except I was born in Lima, Peru, so it wasn't that big of a deal after all. And in Lima, Peru, in the seventies, there was a military dictatorship, so my、uh, parents, my mom, went into labor pains, and they had to drive to the hospital and were stopped by military、uh, soldiers with guns, like three or four times on the way to the hospital. Um, just because they were breaking curfew, <laughs> but anyway, so I was born in South America, and I moved to this country when I was ten years old,、um, here to Florida. And at that time, I started, you know, ESL courses. I had taken a lot of English in Peru. I've gone to like an American school, so I had a pretty good base. But they still put my sister and me in the ESL courses. So that was the beginning of what. Ultimately, ended up being my career, which is teaching English as a second language to students at Palm Beach State College. Yeah, so I, I went to Catholic schools almost my entire life, and I am no longer a Catholic. I'm not very religious at all, but I feel like going to Catholic school—if you've 
been to Catholic school, I know that you said you had in India, uh, you're sort of part of a special club in a way, right? Because it's, um, it's, it's more like a culture <laughs> at this point, right? Yeah. So I went to St. Thomas Aquinas in Fort Lauderdale, and I was just one of those overachieving nerds. I just, I was in all these clubs and I got all these degrees. I took every AP test. And um, in the 90s, what overachieving nerd did not want to go to medical school? So I'm also in that field where it was um, expected that I was going to go to medical school. My father is actually a physician. He's a psychiatrist, um, which is a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when people find out he's a psychiatrist, they will ask, does he analyze your friends? And the answer is sometimes. But um, yeah, so I, I went to college with the expectation of uh, being a pre-med um, student and going to medical school. So I, I went to Duke University in North Carolina. And after my first semester, I realized that was not going to happen. So um, I took chemistry and I took calculus and I struggled. Even though science and math were some of my favorite subjects in high school, I took the AP calculus test. I got a five on that. So I, it was really hard for, and I, I think there were many factors that played into why I struggled so much. But I think ultimately it was being in a room full of overachievers who had been the top of their class and everybody in those science classes had the med school track. And here I was, that was the expectation, but I don't know if that was ever really something that I ever really wanted. So, um, I, I saw these people pouring every free minute they had into studying and I was just enjoying being a freshman in college. So I was loving the dorm life and all that stuff, ordering pizza at three in the morning and hanging out with my friends. And, and then after that first semester, I got some pretty crappy grades, um, which I had never had before, like never had to see before. So um, I had to reassess and it was really, really um, a difficult time. And there was a woman, a senior, I was a freshman and her name was Cersei. Um, nothing like Cersei from Game of Thrones. <laughs> and she, um, she, I was just telling her, I don't know what to do. Like I, science is not my thing. I don't want to be a doctor. And she suggested that I take the spring semester of my freshman year to just kind of take some different classes and just, you know, maybe something that like some electives just so I can get my thoughts together. And she suggested an art history class. So I took an art history class and then being an art history major. <laughs> so I majored in art history and Spanish literature. Those were my two majors at Duke. If you don't mind an, an interjection here, please do. Uh, you mentioned your, your dad's a physician and mm -hmm. well, you mentioned the word expectation. Was that ever explicit or was it implicit that, you know, my dad's a physician, I've been doing well in high school and, and you know, it, it's the typical immigrant story that I myself yes. have been a part of where math, really, that that's what you want to say. Why don't you become a doctor like all the other kids that have come here from India? You know, so it, I, I understand and I'm familiar with <laughs> a very overt uh, scheme, as it were, uh, mm -hmm. to and my parents didn't do that to that extent. You know, they, they had these conversations early on and then they said, okay, regardless of what you do, just make sure you do well at it. Uh, yeah. But that being said, I had friends who are from India, Pakistan, other parts of the world uh, who had also come around the same time or maybe a couple of years before mm -hmm. us 
whose parents were very, very, very straightforward in this said, I'm a doctor. You're going to be a doctor as well because that's, you know, job security, money, whatever the case might be. Prestige. Prestige, yes. yes. Um, I met many of those uh, children of immigrants at Duke. Um, Indian, Korean, um, Pakistani, you know, you name it. In my case, it was implicit. Uh, My dad, in fact, encouraged me not to be a doctor. (laughs) Um, He just said it was just too hard of a life. And he was on call on weekends and dealing with insurance companies and things like that. Like he just, he said, do whatever makes you happy. So I, I never had that pressure from my family. Um, but I put that pressure on myself because at my high school, it was this kind of situation where if you got a certain GPA, if you were in that little, you know, elite group of, of high achieving students, then med school was really the only option that you had that everyone talked about, at least at my high school, that's how it was. So because my dad was a doctor, because he had many doctor friends with children who were on that path, and I was someone who was succeeding in high school, yes, that was the expectation I had placed on myself. But it was implicit. It wasn't explicit. I get to college, and I just had an awakening of all sorts because I had lived in a bubble. And, and let me explain this. You know, I am an immigrant from a third world country, but, I, you know, I, it was still a very privileged upbringing in Peru. And when we left Peru, it was because the situation um, in Peru was was pretty rough um, economically and politically at that time in the 80s. You might recall uh, something called the Shining Path. Um, it is a terrorist organization that was, you know, in Peru in the 80s. And they, they would blow up um, electrical, you know, power plants. So it was really common. It was, you know, you didn't bat an eye on losing your power for a few hours, several times a week. It was just what happened. And you just had candles, you know, and, um, it, the economic situation was such that my parents just didn't want to bring us up there. So at that time you could apply for a visa and it took about five years to do so. And that's what they did. And my dad with his, you know, MD, it, it wasn't, we got it and we came here. Um, and while I was in high school, being Latina, being Hispanic, being an immigrant, wasn't, um, something that was, uh, different, (laughs) you know, like at, at my school, we had Martinez, Lopez, Lopez is my native, my, uh, original name, my maiden name, um, Martinez, Ortega, like those were just last names you heard. So, until I got to Duke, I wasn't aware of my Latina self, you know? And um, I got there and I was immediately approached by Mi Gente, which was a um, Latino student organization. We want you to join our club. You know, I'm like, okay, sure, whatever. And um, it turned out that the, a lot of that, the main purpose of that club was activism. And, you know, a lot of the students there were, you know, Chicanos from L.A. or Chicago or um, New Yorkans, you know, and then people who had struggled with that Latino identity and being marginalized because of it. And um, at first, I just I couldn't relate to any of that. But but it was definitely the first time that I, I marched in protest, you know, for migrant workers and things like that. And it just opened my mind to this whole new world. You know, at Duke, I made friends that were my, my first Muslim friends, my first Hindu friends, my first, um, you know, international friends from Taiwan and China. And 
And it was just a fantastic experience. But at the same time, it was still inside a bubble, right? So, um, so I was just kind of just doing what college students do, just finding myself. And I know that you have talked to some of your guests before about our community college and the pathways program and how, you know, here, put yourself in this box right away. And I personally don't like that because I think college should be that time to explore. But on the other hand, no one, not everyone is as fortunate as, as, as I was to go to a four-year university where that's encouraged, right? Um, so in any case. I have to throw in here, on the record, there hasn't been a single individual that has been in favor of it. So yes, eventually I took note of it and I, I'll bring it up later again, but I just wanted to throw yeah. that in there. No, that's good. And, um, and I, you'll find out as I continue blabbering on about myself that I am not, um, shy about sharing my opinions about what, what the college is, is doing. Um, not in a belligerent way, but, but you'll find out why once I get there. Any case. So yes, uh, college was the beginning of, of an awakening, if you will. Right. Uh, okay. I have this identity that other people see in me. People see me as a, a person of color, which I'd never considered myself before. And, but I, I, I embraced that. And even though I didn't grow up with those specific struggles, I wanted to, to support and be part of that community. So, um, so that was important. And do you think that that was because you either, uh, well, a couple of things come to mind. It's either, uh, or at least the people that didn't feel that way that I grew up with said that either academically we did well enough to where people didn't observe us as immigrants and they just thought, Oh, that person's really good at math. So go hang out with him, Timmy and, and, and get to be better. (laughs) Or because South Florida is, I would say, I would argue a more homogenous society than I've been to Duke than Duke is perhaps. Uh, yes. So do you um, think that it's the latter? Sorry. It's the latter for sure. You know, it, but I will, I will say with the caveat specifically with the Latino population, right? Um, the diversity in South Florida with people from South America, Central America, it's huge. And Miami has been called the capital of the Americas, the capital city of Latin America. So where that's concerned, I, I really felt... I never felt like I was an outsider in that case. I feel like at the time where we, when we moved to this country, there was a huge Peruvian community already here. And of course, all these people were professionals and many of them were physicians. So I think coupled with that certain socioeconomic status and the fact that it was such a like heterogeneous, you know, like Latino population in South Florida yeah, I never felt um, that part of my identity, if that makes sense. Um, no, it does. But when I got to Duke, yeah, when I got to Duke, it was it was palpable. And the university itself is incredibly diverse as far as students, mm-hmm. but uh, Durham, North Carolina, is not. You know, that, so, that's so what I meant to say. Uh, not Duke itself, <laughs> yeah. but Durham is. Is yeah, yeah, you explained it. Right. It's, it's the city in the South. Um, 
so yeah, so it was, it was a fascinating time, um, to, to be a student in the nineties at Duke. It was, it was a fantastic time. And I'm very grateful that my parents, um, were able to send me there. Um, and that I was able to have that experience. I'm fortunate, you know, like I, I worked while I was at school, like, you know, I had little jobs while I was there, but I, I could focus on studying. And, and in the end, I chose the path of, um, art history and Spanish literature. I didn't know what I was going to do with that. But um, once I got on that track, I, I started excelling in my classes again. And, and it, was, um, it was a great experience. So as I neared my senior year, everyone's starting to apply to medical schools, apply to law schools. You know, a lot of people had uh, dreams of going to be consultants or going to Wall Street and things like that. And I just um, wasn't sure what I was going to do. I thought with my art history major, maybe I could do something with curating art galleries. But then I didn't see myself in that crowd. Um, So I was I started just really wondering what I was going to do. And someone suggested apply to the Teach for America program, which is essentially like a Peace Corps, Mm -hmm. but for teachers. So the idea behind Teach for America is to heavily recruit at places like Duke. So very high achieving, very idealistic young college graduates, put them in classrooms in very under-resourced urban areas and very rural areas and have them teach for two years. Um, And the idea is that those people who have that experience teaching will then stay somehow in the education field and in the field of helping underprivileged students. Teach for America has been heavily criticized for many reasons. Um, and you can, you know, look it up, but I, I, my experience was really good. And I think that, um, that I ended up learning so much more from the experience than say my students at the time did. So I applied and I, uh, I got chosen and the way, you know, the interview process was very grueling and it included doing a teaching demonstration in front of fellow applicants. And, you know, it was two or three days long. And once you get accepted, you don't know what you're going to teach or where you're going to teach. They sort of make that decision for you and they send you a letter. So I got my letter of acceptance and I was told that I was going to teach high school Spanish in Washington, D.C. So I was ecstatic about that. That's exactly what I wanted. So I, um, I was so excited to go to DC for many reasons. You know, I traveled to DC several times from Durham. It was only a short four hour drive. And my college boyfriend at the time had uh, just started law school at Georgetown. So of course I wanted to, to move there and be with him. In any case, it all worked out. So I went to DC and I taught at Eastern Senior High School which is nicknamed the Pride of Capitol Hill, being 17 blocks from the Capitol. And in Eastern, I was uh, 22 years old when I started teaching. Wow. And yeah, I it was so intimidating on a rock. I, you know, I walked in there. I had um, students, some of whom, you know, were 18, 19 years old, you know, seniors in high school who were taking Spanish 1, Spanish 2. And... Um, out of the entire student body, um, all but seven students were African American. So it was, you know, black students and seven students who were all uh, relatives of each other, Salvadorian descent, because there's a big Salvadorian population in Washington, D.C. 
So um, that experience continued my, you know, mind opening um, of, of the, of really the, the African-American experience, the black experience. And we are speaking now, you and I, on the heels of Black Lives Matters movement and all the riots that are happening. So I, we can't not address that, right? And I, when I was teaching in DC, I, I had experiences that I never thought I'd have. Um, for example, I had students who had to share a winter coat, brothers, and they only had one winter coat. So they had to take turns during the winter, which days they went to school because they had to share that one winter coat. Um, there were two occasions where I purchased a pregnancy test for students who thought they might be pregnant. And I was the only person that they felt comfortable enough to come to. Um, and, you know, the one day in the middle of class, a car backfired outside on the street. But it sounded like gunfire, and my students immediately, instinctively, all got down. And I'm standing there like an idiot, standing up, like, "What was that?" And they're like, "Miss Lopez, get down!" You know. So <laughs> I understood that there was a whole experience outside of anything I had ever experienced, and and my students were so open with me, and they were so accepting of me, and. Um, because they knew that I cared, you know, I actually went in there and I put everything I could into my class. Um, so I am very, 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 very near and dear to this, the Black Lives Matters movement. Like I know who my, my students are and I know why that is important, but I don't want to get political beyond that. Um, the Teach for America experience was a two year commitment. I stayed on a third year. And the reason I stayed on a third year was because, among other reasons, I was given a homeroom when I started and they were sophomores. And, you know, the next year they were juniors. And I did not want to leave the school before they graduated. So I kind of stayed with my homeroom students through their senior year. I also started the AP Spanish program at the high school. Um, and I wanted to kind of see it through and make sure that somebody else could take it over. But by the third year, I was ready to move on because there were so many situations um, teaching at a school like that that were just, I knew were, were stressful, anxiety-inducing, and, and just, I, I thought maybe I can do something that still serves a community like this, but not experience the daily stress. If that makes sense. I saw colleagues of mine, you know, teachers who were not Teach for America teachers, but teachers who had been teaching at the school, who after 10, 20 years were so jaded. And I didn't want to be like that, you know? So I, again, I found myself in the what should I do category. And one day I was approached by a student at Georgetown who was getting a master's in linguistics, and she wanted to know if she could come to my class and run, um, run an experiment on my students. There was like a, a grammar experiment, there was a control group, and then there was an experimental group, and there was a treatment, some kind of grammar lesson and test. And as I saw her do that, I got fascinated. I'm like, that's cool. So why are you doing this? What are you doing? What is linguistics? And, um, and 
I decided, okay, that's what I want to do. I want to get a master's in linguistics. That's a great next step for me. So I, um, I applied to two places, Georgetown University and um, University of Florida. I applied to Georgetown because that's where this woman was from, and she was talking up the program, and it was great. And then I also applied to UF because I thought, here's an opportunity to go back to Florida, and that might be cool. So I ended up getting into both programs, and I chose UF. And that is one of my life moments where you have two big choices and then you choose one and you always wonder, well, what if I had chosen the other, right? But um, the reasons I chose UF were mostly financial. Um, Georgetown offered a half scholarship and as a private school, that would have meant a lot of loans. Uh, UF offered a whole teaching graduate assistantship plus a stipend. Um, so that made more sense. And I was excited to go back to Florida, even if it wasn't South Florida. So I, I went to UF and I moved there right before 9-11. Um, UF was a great time too. I, I really love, I loved being a full-time student. You know, anyone who has the opportunity to be a full-time student, that is such a lucky thing to be. Like, I, I think now all of my students who go to work and take my classes, it's, it's, a, it's hard. But, you know, being at UF, I taught my classes, I, I t- attended courses, and then I, I taught as a TA. I taught intro to linguistics, and I taught several ESL courses at the English Language Institute. Um, and it was a wonderful time. So I focused on second language acquisition and bilingualism. Um, so I knew teaching language was my passion. You know, after having taught Spanish, it was, it was, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And it was so exciting when I decided to teach Spanish because when I first got to Duke, I had friends of mine who were taking Spanish for the first time and they would show me their, their paragraphs and they would say, can you look over my Spanish paragraph? <laughs> right. So I'm like, sure. And then I would start crossing things out. Well, why'd you cross that out? And I'd be like, I don't know. It just sounds better. <laughs> you know, like, well, why are you fixing that? I'm like, because that's wrong. <laughs> and then I told myself, I, that's, I want to be able to explain to people why their writing needs to change. So that sort of led me to teaching languages. Um, anyway, I want to make the, this very long story kind of a little bit shorter for you. But um, my intention after finishing my master's was to move to Miami and to teach Spanish as a heritage language. Um, so how is, is that different language? from, I, I've never heard that phrase before. What does that even mean? So heritage language education is, um, and I did my master's thesis on this. It is teaching, um, the language to students who speak it as a family language, but don't have a grasp of the written and, um, reading and the writing and the academic side of it. I see. So for example, children or grandchildren of Cuban immigrants who have been in Miami for, you know, all their lives born and raised in Miami can communicate in Spanish, but can't write, right. Can't read in Spanish. So that, um, that Spanish instruction is very specific. So I actually, uh, I did a whole thesis on that 
and I was prepared to do that. So I graduated on in December 2003, and I had a semester, you know, the spring semester of 2004, where I was looking for jobs. And in my job search, I saw that Palm Beach State College, it was a total whim how I found it, but Palm Beach State College was looking for an EAP professor and a master's in linguistics was the requirement. And although I had taught ESL as part of my program, you know, I had never really thought teaching at, you know, at a college was something I was going to do, but I was attracted to the idea um, because one of my colleagues at UF, brilliant woman named Andrea Dallas, she told me once that her best professors and her best classes were at Broward College. So in her whole entire, you know, academic career, she had gotten her associates at at Broward College, BCC back in the day. And, um, and she said like the small class sizes, the, the empathy of the professors, like she just had so many wonderful things to say about community colleges. And I had never really given that a thought, but when I saw that job posted, I was like, well, you know, let me throw my application and let's see what happens. And there we go. I got the job. I got the job never having, you know, adjuncted or anything like that, but, um, but I had plenty of teaching experience. So I got the job and I started that fall. So that's how I got to Palm Beach State College. And um, it's been 16 years now, I think. Holy cow. 2004, yeah, (laughs) 16 years. So when I started out, and this is where I'm going to kind of get to the point where I think I already know what I want to name my episode, Anurag. Um, so I started out and I'll tell you in a minute. (laughs) So I started out being kind of like a golden child. You know, I, I've always been sort of a type A personality kind of perfectionist and always a people pleaser. So I never said no to things. So, Oh, please uh, be, you know, this club's advisor. Okay. You know, and do this. Okay. So, and I, I also applied to this, this program that they had at the time at Palm Beach State called uh, Palm Beach Community College at the time called LEAP. So it was, a, it was a program designed for women and minorities at the college who had administrative um, aspirations of some kind. And uh, five people got chosen per year. And during that year, uh, you got to do all these workshops with other colleges and travel different places. So I went to California. I went to Tallahassee. And, and got to sit into like the president's cabinet and all this stuff. And I was encouraged to do this by the administrators um, at the time who, as you know, have changed, has, have changed many times um, throughout the years. And um, so I did, and we each had to have a project. And my project was I wanted to open a women's center on our campus because we had nothing like it, you know, a place where um, young women could go to get information, to get anything. I don't know. Like I, I had a whole presentation and it was a time where I was really seeking that validation and I was really, you know, trying to, to excel and I was young and I had all this energy and I wasn't married yet. I didn't have children. I was just so like into the job and wanting to just have a spotlight, you know, and, and, and I had one for a while and it was, um, it was very satisfying at the time, you know, and then I, I, I was up for my, um, tenure and back when you only had three years and then you applied for a continuing contract and 
most people got it. You know, again, lucky time for me. But um, but I was the first person who did a a website as a as a portfolio. So I, I did my portfolio as a website, and I put I, I scanned all these items and put them in, and, and gave everybody a CD ROM instead of like a big you know paper. And I was all proud of that and accolades, blah blah blah. So um, during that time, I met um, my husband Damien, married him. Um, we got married in Chile, which was a fantastic um, experience. Found out I was going to have a baby. So things were going fantastic. And um, on March 13th, 2008, um, Damien died in a plane crash. Sorry so, yeah, he was uh, FAU. He was at FAU doing a PhD in wildlife biology, integrative biology. So his mm-hmm. um, passion was birds wading birds specifically. So he would uh, study the conditions in Lake Okeechobee and count bird nests for um, great egrets and great blue herons and those birds. So part of his research involved flying on little Cessna planes over with his, you know, research um, assistants flying over and counting, um, counting nests. Mm-hmm. So, and they would hire somebody they would hire a pilot to do that. So this was one of his last flights. He was almost done, and uh, and the plane went down. And I was told, I you know, I had taught a class, and then when I came back to class, my phone, I had a, I had a voicemail, and it was his advisor. And his advisor said there's been an accident. So I don't want to hash that day too much, but um, that was a point where everything was interrupted. So. I, you know, wife interrupted, mom interrupted, career interrupted, professor interrupted. That's going to be the title of my podcast, Professor Interrupted. So everything changed that day for me, obviously. Um, and I, I went home. I found out, you know, the details through the Sun Sentinel had an article that posted online about the plane. And they didn't put the names of the people on the plane but I knew that that's exactly what it was. And that's how I officially found out. And, um, you know, the months that ensued were, were very lonely, you know, um, being widowed at such a young age is, is a very lonely experience, um, because you're not in the widow category that is expected. You know, I tried to find groups that would, um, support groups and things like that. And there, I found a young widows one and, um, the average age in the young widow support group was 45, 50, maybe 55, you know, those were considered young widows wow. uh, and widowers. So I was the baby widow, you know, and I was pregnant. So there was this whole like element of pity that people looked at me, you know, it was like, Oh my God, that's so sad. And, and I hated my whole life. I hated being pitied, you know? And here I was like, this was a very, um, public death. It was in the news and it was, you know, every people just knew about it. So, so it was really hard to just go through that publicly and to, um, at the same time, just, you know, grieve my husband's death while, carrying this baby. And I I was worried about how is this going to affect my baby? And I was worried about, you know, so many things, but you survive. And part of the reason that I I was 
looking forward to talking about this is because, you know, grief is a journey and we, we come out of it and, um, you never forget the pain, but you learn to live with it and you can make it part of who you are. And I hate, um, sometimes people are defined by something that happened to them. And I, I never want to be defined as the woman who lost her husband. And, uh, but it's, I don't want to forget Damien and I don't want to ever ignore that. And I think that experience has shaped so much of who I am today that, um, that I, I talk about it openly and not, in, not to make people sad or uncomfortable, even though sometimes it does make people uncomfortable, but, um, but just to, just to say, you know, this is someone who was wonderful. He lived, I loved him. He lives in my son now through my son. Um, and losing him put so many things into perspective for me. So, um, professor interrupted. Yeah. So after he died. I obviously took the semester off immediately. This was March. So it was the middle of the spring semester. And a couple of your uh, past guests stepped up right away. Mark and Helena, among others, took over some of my classes. And they had to walk in, um, you know, the day after Damien died and tell my students, this is what happened to Professor Marks. And, you know, I, I had such an outpouring of support and letters and money. And, you know, it was just, it was people at the college were so kind. I'll never, ever forget it. Um, but I took, I took an entire year off. You know, I, I had the baby in July. He's not a baby anymore. He's almost 12. <laughs> and, um, and then I came back the following fall. So I took a little more than a year off. Once I came back, um, things were very different. You know, I was a single mom and I was a single mom without any help. (laughs) You know, I I was back in Boca. My parents were in Fort Lauderdale and they helped all they could, but I moved back to Boca and I had been with them for a little while during, you know, the whole pregnancy. I I couldn't do the things I did before and I didn't want to, you know, and it was, my priorities changed entirely. I was department chair before the Damien's accident. And when I came back, I was really, really encouraged to continue being department chair. I didn't want to be, I was like, no, 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 I don't have time for that. I can't observe people at night. I have a baby, you know? And at that time, the Dean was like, we'll do your nighttime observations. We just, you know, we really need you to be department chair. I'm like, okay. So that job has not left me. I still am department <laughs> chair. <laughs> but yeah, um, and I, I do love a lot of things about being department chair. Um, but it put things into perspective on your own. Like I, that type a thing that I talk about, it, it changed, you know, it changed my personality. Like I didn't feel like work stuff was so important anymore. It doesn't mean that I didn't put everything into my class, mm-hmm. but little things that would bother me before, or, you know, gossip or politics, um, up at the administrative level that, you know, would, would really piss me off or would, those things didn't matter. So I started thinking all the time about the big picture, you know, anytime people complained about something or someone, I just thought, did anyone die? No. (laughs) So it's not a big deal. Right. Um, I'm going to focus on my students because my students have always been my passion. And from the time I started, Palm Beach State, again, following with the theme of opening minds and understanding other struggles, 
up until that point, I had never understood the immigrant struggle, right? Like when I went to Duke, I started understanding the Latino struggle. Um, when I went, you know, when I taught in DC, I understood the black struggle, not understood it and lived it. Please don't think I pretend to know what that's like. Oh, no, no, no. I I understand what you mean. Yeah. (laughs) But you know, I, I, you became aware of it and you, you understood it better. Sure. Yes, exactly. Um, when I was at a university of Florida, I taught ESL, but that was at an institute that was, um, designed for international students, you know, so a lot of the students who were at that um, program were pretty wealthy, who were sent over from, you know, their families paid a lot of money for them to come. So I didn't understand the immigrant struggle until I started teaching at Palm Beach State. You know, I have students and I still do undocumented students who pay out of state tuition for their classes, who, um, who work full time and teach and, and take two or three classes they are such hardworking people. Um, many of them have degrees from their native countries, lawyers, doctors, um, engineers. And they come to this country because, yeah, yeah, the American dream, the reason that you and I are here too, right? And um, they are worried about their accents, you know? And I tell my students so much the first day, and an accent, a foreign accent is just a sign of being brave. Like you are brave, like mm-hmm. to be in a system where you are taking classes in a language that is not your first language. That's brave to, you know, walk around and go to the store and communicate, go to the doctor. You're using, you're not using your native language. That's brave. So don't ever be ashamed of your accent. Um, I spend just a lot of time like just advocating for them. And, and, and I decided, you know, when I came back to work that I was going to do less of the, oh, let me be the golden professor and let me do all these things that make administrators happy. I decided, no, I'm just going to focus on what really matters is getting through to my students and doing the best I can for them and by them. And that's sort of how I have operated since as far as my job. So when, a, <laughs> you know, the question BS comes at up, this yes. moment, if you don't mind. Um, no, go ahead. So two people that I spoke with about this, uh, Dave Rossman was the first one. And then I think mm-hmm. it was Mark that I spoke with recently. Uh, the, the, the episodes get published like a month after I record them. So okay. I tend to forget the fine details. But uh, with Dave, he shared some private details. Mark shared mm-hmm. some private details as yes, well. Yes, I heard them both. And the, the I got different answers to the same question where I asked them that, do you find it necessary or incumbent that people have to go through not necessarily tragedy, but difficult mm-hmm. times in their life in order to be able to make the change to where you can say, uh, again, not, not to say that I'm saying this jokingly, but did someone die? Yeah, no. Uh, yeah. no, no, I, I know what you mean. I know exactly what so you mean. So Dave said, no, you could travel and, you know, he, he's, he mentioned, or he quoted a friend who, you know, was well-traveled and had visited different cultures and gained appreciation for, uh, well, humanity as it were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then Mark said, no, I, I think that that's an integral part of, you know, pain turning to comedy. We were talking a lot about yes, comedians. You mentioned comedians and went through a whole list. Um, yeah, I remember both podcasts because I just, like I said, I was binging them over the last two days, taking a walk in the morning and listening and, and just fascinated. I've known Mark forever and it was just so nice to get to really know 
new things about him. Mm-hmm. Um, so where do you stand on that spectrum of, yeah, it doesn't matter. You can do other things to gain perspective or, uh, do you think it's almost necessary to, to be pushed through the fire? Yeah, no, I don't think it's necessary because I wouldn't wish the pain that I went through on anybody. Um, but it, it certainly has made me less petty, I guess is really the only thing I can think of right now. My appreciation of the struggles of my students as I have gotten to know them in all these different areas, right? high school students, college students, I think my appreciation for their struggles and my advocacy for them would have happened regardless of what I went through. Okay. Um, the, the way that I approach my job and my life now, obviously that is a direct result of what happened to me. Um, and I'm not saying, oh, well, this is a silver lining to losing your husband, right? Like, I don't, I don't think I was a bad person before. And sure. if I could, you know, and, and if I had a choice to have him here still, I would, you know, choose that too, even though my life now is actually wonderful and I'm remarried to a really wonderful man. But, you know, life takes you through all these turns. Again, like what would have happened to me had I stayed in DC and gone to Georgetown? Like, it, again, that's just, you don't know. Um, when people hear my story, they tell me, oh, you're so strong. I've heard that so many times. You're so strong. But I don't know if that's really strength. You, If it happened to anybody, they would probably do the same, right? You got to keep going for a child. You're like, child needs you. You're, not, you're going to be there for your child and you're going to get through it. Um, so I don't know if that strength is something that I was born with. No, I think it's just human resiliency. So I've gone through something and, but I'm not the only one. And I see, and that's the nice thing about listening to your podcast. You hear these stories and everybody has a story to tell. Um, and everybody has gone through some kind of struggle. I mean, maybe some people are luckier than others and their struggles haven't been as intense, but no one has gotten to at least the age I am, right? Mid forties without having had some kind of struggle in some area of life. So let's call that life experience perhaps, but to answer your question more directly, no, I don't think you need to go through a tragedy to, um, to gain a perspective of some kind, you know, in my case, it it changed a lot of how I view the world. Um, but I don't, I don't think that people need to go through that to make that change themselves. If anything, I think my experience did help some of my friends, you know, even though they didn't go through the experience, they saw me go through it and, um, they saw how I responded to it. And I think that that might've changed. So in a way, like when Dave was saying he had friends who traveled and yeah, you know, so if if you were close to me at that time, you might've gone through a transformation of your own too. Just, just watching what happened. Um, I had several young friends who were young parents at the time who didn't have, you know, health, um, life insurance or anything like that at the time. And they went and got it as a result because you just never know what's going to happen. Right. You just don't know. Um, you could be 35 and lose your life like Damien did. So, um, so no, I don't think you need to go through the tragedy, but in my case it did. It, it was quite a transformation. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, gosh, I don't know. That's, um, that sort of brings me to, to where I am now, you know, like I was a single mom for, for many years. I met my current husband, Eric, um, when Austin was six or seven. So I had this perfect little, you know, life was just me and my boy, the two of us, you know, we were a team and we were just like, just our team of two. Um, and then Eric came into my life and he was divorced, two girls. So here I had this opportunity to blend a family and to give Austin some siblings and to, you know, um, and, and I took it and it was, and, and it's been great. <laughs> so so sorry, Eric, if you're listening to this, you're probably going to hate me for this, but, um, <laughs> you, you mentioned, uh, very kindly, I should say, I, I would not have, I don't think Julie would have used those same words a few years ago. Uh, you mentioned a difference in sleep schedule and how yes. Eric's a night owl and, and you don't mind waking up at 8 a.m. Oh and he might goodness. be a little grumpy about it. So I'll um, preface yeah, this so by saying that, right? when I met my significant other, mm-hmm. uh, Julie, she was the person to wake up at, you know, five o'clock in the morning, get the girls ready for school. Uh, she also has two kids from a previous marriage. And uh, so she was on the morning schedule mm-hmm. and I was on the grad school schedule where, <laughs> yes. you know, you, you, you stay up all night doing whatever. And then you yes. wake up at 10 AM, you go to, you wander yes. into class that you need to teach half awake. And then, you know, you, you go to your own classes. Then you go across the street <laughs> to Palm Beach state. And then you stay up all night doing math problems. Yes. <laughs> so very early on, we needed, I needed to change. And we had this conversation and she said, you know, I can't be up at 2 AM or, mm-hmm. you know, when you're in prime time, I cannot be awake at the same time as you. So if you want to hang out with me or you want to talk to me when you're driving to school or driving back to school, you need to wake up earlier in the morning. And I don't think anything has been better for my life than waking up earlier as opposed to waking up, you know, at whatever time I did, I did at that time. Uh, I wasn't grumpy when I got to school because I wasn't forced to sit in traffic for two hours. And right. the first time I drove, I was like, this is cool. Like temperature wise, this is nice and cool in the morning. The The sun hasn't come up, so it's not muggy yet. It's not, you know, high humidity in the summer. So this is wonderful. But before that, it, it was a, a fair amount of, of, of abrasiveness on both sides where I would say, why can't you just stay up till past eight o'clock? What is wrong with you? You know, <laughs> Normal human beings stay up till 10 p.m. And I didn't, again, I I was foolish and I was naive and I didn't know that the schedule and the responsibility she had as someone who was working full time, going to school and also had to take care of two kids. Right. So how does that work for you? When, oh, I you know, have so much to say about that, but I'll, <laughs> I'll keep it. Well, incidentally, let me preface this by saying that Julie is my Starbucks name. Oh, Okay. Because no one ever knows what Luli is. Like, if I try to say Luli to somebody, like, at a restaurant or something like that, what? Oh, I spell it. Like, I don't know what's so hard of L-U-L-I, really? but it just it makes people, like, yeah, so it's it's hard. And that's a nickname for Lourdes, as you know. So it's just uh, it's just crazy. So if I go to Starbucks or if I go to a restaurant, you know, pre-pandemic, and I put my name down on the list, I'm always Julie. It's Julie nobody has a problem with, so. <laughs> So yeah, so Julie's my alter ego, but, um, yeah, so Eric is 
a professor at FAU. He teaches urban planning. And he is in the very fortunate uh, position of having, you know, he teaches one, one class a semester generally, because, you know, he's, he's at the research university. Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of research. He does a ton of research, has brought in lots of grants. So he, he works 80 hours a week, but he gets the, like he likes to say, he has the, the ability to choose which 80 hours in the week sure. he works. <laughs> you know, and they usually fall late into the night. That's when he does his best work. And um, when we first moved in together, um, I had a really hard time with that because I'm a light sleeper and um, I, he would wake me up coming back into the room at three in the morning. I'm like, oh God, now I only have two or three hours left of my own sleep, you know? And sometimes I would just be awake being upset about the fact that I only had three hours of sleep. So instead of sleeping those three hours, I was awake and upset about the fact that I only had three hours. And I subsequently was just tired the next day. So, you know, in our case, we had time during the day to, to hang out because one of the wonderful things about being a professor at Palm Beach State full time is that you also have some degree of flexibility. So, so we we could have lunch together. We could do things, um, but but the evenings, you know, were tough. If we had his girls, you know, we have them fifty percent of the time, um, and they were going to school, then he would have to get up early in the morning anyway to help getting them ready. So then sometimes he would do that on one or two hours of sleep, take them to school, and then come back and sleep again until ten or eleven. <laughs> I know um, that because I know <laughs> that I've done that before. Where I I would be up late at night solving problems, and then you know, take a nap for an hour or two. And then Julie would be like, Oh, I got an early meeting. Can you please take the girls to school? Right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And by the way, that's awesome for you to do that. Like it's, it's great. Um, we are after we've been together five years now and, and, and it's something that, that we have learned to kind of both give from our ends. Um, so he makes a concerted effort a few nights a week to make himself come to bed before midnight, you know, and he reads and, and then there, there are other times where I'm like, Oh, cool. Stay up, do your thing. You know, just be quiet when you come in It's three or four in the morning and I have an early class or something. So it, I learned, that it marriage, you know, I, I was married for a year and a half the first time. That was it. So, you know, remember a wife interrupted. So I, um, I didn't, I had to learn to be a wife again and to just deal or, you know, you don't have to be married to this. You, you're in a serious relationship and it's the same thing, you know, having an, a serious intimate relationship requires, um, a certain degree of compromise. And that is not groundbreaking. That's just how it is. Um, interestingly enough, you know, I had a really, really hard time, um, when we first got married, just mental health wise, I didn't fall into a depression after my husband died. Of course I was depressed. It was a situational depression. I went through a lot of therapy. I didn't take any meds, even though my dad's a psychiatrist, you know, he said, you can take an antidepressant if you want. I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to take anything while I'm pregnant. Um, but then, um, a few months after after being married the second time, I was like, here I was. My life was together again. I had this amazing husband. He's such a great guy, you know. But it was just like I was falling into this, I could feel it, a depression. And a lot of it, in the retrospect, had to do with the insomnia that I was feeling about, like, the, <laughs> the, the lack of sleep schedule. I wasn't sleeping. And I wasn't sleeping well. And then in the end, that just felt like that just added to this feeling of depression. And 
Um, blended families are hard. Um, they're beautiful, but they're really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, being a stepmom, you're a, a stepdad, right? And mm-hmm. It's it's hard. It's a hard job because you love these children so much, but you're not their biological parents. So there are um, there are lines that that you can't cross, right? And sure. um, and in the case of uh, my husband, there's there's an ex in the picture that's not the easiest person in the world. That's all I'll say. Um, so so yeah, so it's hard. So I think a lot of factors. Um, brought me in, in a place that was a little bit dark, you know, for a while. So I talked to my dad who always has the best advice, you know, and, um, and, and I followed through with a course. I actually did end up taking some medication for a while, but it wasn't for me. I weaned myself off of it very slowly and, and, and now we're in a much better place. So now we're compromised on the different circadian rhythms, but uh, we have to make up for it in other ways. You know, we have to make sure we spend time. We have lunch together. Well, now that we're stuck at the house in quarantine, we spend a lot of time together. But before, you know, it was like, hey, let's have lunch or let's spend the afternoon doing this, you know, because I know that tonight I have to go to bed early and you're probably going to be up late. So, you know, so we would try to carve out times to spend together because otherwise the, if the intimacy isn't there, then you... Um, then you're just kind of ships passing through the night and that's not good. Right. Yeah. So that's how we handle the difference in schedules. (laughs) But I, I, you know, he does great work at night. I have to give it to him. You know, he's, he writes and writes and writes and writes and that's when he likes to do it. So I'm not going to make the man go to bed early if that's what he does, you know, but I appreciate that he makes the effort for me. So we just do that for each other. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Sonia, I think that was a really long-winded um, life story, but but it had all these elements that I think are very, uh, you know, key like themes like in the interviews you've done, the transformation and all that stuff. So um, I'm really, I hope that if you have listeners, and I know some of your listeners are not even Palm Beach State people, you mentioned you have listeners from Australia. It's very, very strange. I did not have any expectation that this would have nearly as much of a reach as it does. Um, I don't know who the people are in. I I have 17 subscribers in Houston, Texas. I was just looking at the numbers earlier and it's like, is it, you know, family members? And then I, I usually talk with people and it's like, well, they might listen to one episode, but so if let's say you have family members in Houston, Texas or Portland, Oregon, or, you know, mm-hmm. so you might share the episode with them. And then for whatever reason, that number tends to grow or has been growing. And then those same individuals or the same IP addresses are getting pinged on other episodes as well. So it's very unnerving to, to realize <laughs> <very> that. exciting. <laughs> That is exciting. That means they want more. They want to hear the next episode or they want to hear the next set of questions that you ask. I think that's, that's exciting. So I think, um, congratulations on her. That's awesome. Um, part of me wanting to to talk about the, the widowhood and, and that, that struggle of grief was, God, if there's some random person in Houston who can benefit from this story, you know, God, I, I that would be great. And, um, so, yeah. And interestingly enough, you mentioned Portland, Oregon. That's where Damien's from. So my family, um, 
my son's grandparents, my second mm-hmm. set of parents are in Portland, Oregon, and I'll be sharing this with them. So you'll get more subscribers. <laughs> more I'm subscribers sure, from, from the Northwest. Yep. From the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> Very cool. A um, couple of questions that came. I, I haven't had a chance to speak with anyone for a while. So uh, these are from a few weeks ago. Okay. What is something that you're thankful for? I'm thankful, obviously, for my son. And I think if you ask any parent that, that's going to be the default answer. Um, But let me explain why, right? Um, He is funny. He's smart. He's sweet. Um, He reminds me so much of his dad. Um, He looks like him. He acts like him, even though he never met him. Um, So those genes are strong. (laughs) Uh, he gets along so well with Eric. He loves his little sisters, his little stepsisters, which we just call them sisters. Um, he is ADHD, like textbook ADHD. Um, so I've struggled with, with him, you know, starting school and being academically, like excelling academically, but struggling behaviorally. Um, when he was in early elementary school, it was quite a struggle. Now that he's in middle school, it's, it's leveled out, you know, but he is one of those people who hyper focuses, and this is typical of ADHD individuals, um, hyper focuses on certain things and then couldn't give a crap about other things. Right. So his video games, he could do that for hours and hours and hours. And there's certain things school related where he's so into it, but then there's other things that it's like pulling teeth. So this whole taking classes from home during the pandemic was just a daily struggle of log in, do your English, do your, you know, it was just hard. But um, what makes him um, frustrating as far as his ADHD also makes him so endearing. Um, and he's so self-perceptive. Like he, he knows um, that his brain is different and he know like, and even as a really young child, when he was five, six years old, he's like, my brain doesn't, allow me to do that. Like I want to stop, but my brain doesn't let me, you know? So for a child that age to be able to understand that and voice that, you know, he's always just impressed me. So I'm thankful for him because if it wasn't for him, I don't know, I would have fallen totally apart after Damien's accident. And I couldn't, I couldn't let myself do that. So yes, Austin, my son. Austin. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, what advice would you give your younger self? You know, it's so funny. I was always thinking about questions that you might ask me to ask your future ones. That was one of them. What advice would you give your like 18 year old self? Um, great. So I'm now I'm excited to get to answer it. If I were to, I'm I'm just choosing 18 as an arbitrary number, Mm -hmm. but, um, I would, (laughs) there's so many things I would tell her, but one thing I would tell her was don't spend your entire college life with one boyfriend, (laughs) you know, which is what I did. And, um, even though he was fantastic in many ways and, you know, such a good boyfriend, it would have been nice to, to kind of play the field and, and have fun and meet different guys, you know? Um, I would, I would have told her, don't get serious with one guy all four years of college. I would, I would tell her, um, you know, not to be so worried about what other people think. You know, I, I spent a lot of my twenties just worried about what people thought of me. And I don't think that Damien's death necessarily changed that. I think that's really a result of maturity. 
I think most people go through that transformation where you just stop caring, you know, um, and you just become more comfortable in your own skin. So I would love for her to know that it's okay. It doesn't matter what other people think. You be you and you do you, you know. I would have um, told her not to sign up for credit cards at, <laughs> in college. You know how <laughs> you walked around and they gave you a free T-shirt if you signed up for this credit card? Sure. I did that, you know, and I thought this credit card at age 18, 19 was just this free money. And, and I used them. And I found myself in my early 20s with like a couple thousand dollars of credit card debt that, you know, and it was just ridiculous because I had never been taught by my parents or at school a financial, you know, knowledge, like anything like about understanding finances. Like I had to figure that out on my own and I made mistakes. So I would tell her, no, stay away from the credit cards. <laughs> so um, I guess those are a few things that I would tell that particular person at 18. Yeah. I mean, I, I would give different advice to different iterations of me, but I'll stick with that answer. I have to put in a plug here for teaching all high school. I know it's taught in high school and also college, but I, I, to make sure that before someone graduates from whatever that whatever associates bachelor's doesn't matter what it is from their first degree whether it's high school and if they if you move on to associates you you have to get tested on this yes. on exponential growth with credit cards as an example <laughs> yeah I do this every semester <laughs> it, you know we buy a car we buy a house we get some credit cards to buy a Louis Vuitton bag that tends to be like the most common example that students come up with. And then we set aside money for retirement. And all of this happens within the context of there's this very easy formula that you can use to figure out what your monthly car payment's going to be. All you have to do is turn your phone sideways, punch in some numbers, and you don't get scammed. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, uh, let's buy a $5,000 bag, uh, ill-advised, but let's yeah. say you do that and you pay with it for the credit card and if you're buying a $5,000 bag at, I don't know, 17, 18 years of, of age, presumably you don't have the wherewithal to pay it off or the finances to pay it off. Mm -hmm. Let's say that that debt follows you for, I don't know, 10 years at 18% interest. What does that do to your credit score? What does that do to your monthly payments? And if you do continue to make that $27 payment, how much is that really you know, making a yeah, dent in the grand scheme of things? A lot more expensive than five thousand dollars. Oh yeah. Yes. And so I think that's have, wonderful that you do that. They have no idea uh, mm -hmm. what exponential growth does to their credit card statements. Yeah. And then when they see that, it, it typically is an eye-opening experience, and they start freaking out before they. And every single class always ends <laughs> with. Or, Every single time I do this, the class always ends with people rushing my podium or rushing where I'm sitting at the end. And they say, so what if we have like $1,100 in debt and we haven't paid our, right. our bill in six months? And so how much? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. I think that's so wonderful that you do that. Um, among you know my EAP courses, I've also taught SLS 1501, which is formerly known as strategies for college success. And now it's called the first year experience mm -hmm. classes, um, classes, Jairis, you know, teaches and things like that. And, um, 
and there's, there's a chapter in that book about financial independence and financial knowledge, like 101 finances. So I think that was, it's great that that's included in the class, but I think you're doing it one better by actually showing real life examples. So it's, it's so important to, to get them at that age so that they don't make, they don't make those mistakes. All right, so this is getting, uh, uh, I guess, progressively deeper. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the meaning of life? Oh, wow. You haven't asked this deep of a question, I think, to anybody, (laughs) Anurag. You can Um, thank the previous individual. Okay, well, I. it's hard to answer this question without kind of talking about my spirituality and or lack thereof, I guess. Um, I grew up Catholic, Mm -hmm. but not totally Catholic. You know, my mom went to church once in a while. My dad was a self-proclaimed agnostic and he, you know, he agreed to let us go to Catholic schools so that we would make our own choice. Right. And when I was in school, I did, you know, went to mass, did all that stuff, but I was never sure I believed it. Right. And, um, Once I got to college, I made my first Muslim friends, like I said, my first Hindu friends, my first atheist friends. And I really question a lot about, like, say, an afterlife. So when Damien died, I wished I was spiritual. I wished I was religious at that point because it would have been very comforting to... And I'm sorry if I offend anybody out there who's religious, but um, it would have been so comforting to know, oh, he's looking down. He's so proud of you. And at one point I did, you know, I did let myself go there because it was a comforting thought. Um, but, but I, if I had to explain my own spirituality, I, I would call myself an agnostic too, because I can't say that I know what happens to our consciousness after we die. Sure. Right. I don't know that. So I, I wouldn't label myself as an atheist. But, um, but is there a heaven and hell? I don't think so. You know, so, uh, the meaning of life, it's just, we are just this blip. One of my favorite books is the parallel worlds by Michio Kaku. You're familiar with him. Parallel universes. Mm -hmm. And, um, I love that idea, right? Like there's a universe that we're in right now. And then there's this parallel universe where I, perhaps I took, I went to, you know, Georgetown instead of Florida. And, and then I'm living out that, that life. And each one of us, right, is living a whole different life. You know, people who died in one universe didn't die in the other universe. Um, that, those thoughts keep me very entertained, <laughs> you know, when I, when I just start thinking about stuff like that. Um, so I don't have a really deep, like, I don't think we were meant to be Like, I don't think I am like this perfect, you know, uh, God made me out of a perfect mold. I don't don't believe that. Um, I really think we're just this random, okay, these chromosomes got together from your parents and you were lucky enough to make it into the embryo stage because many times that doesn't happen. So here you are, you made it, you're a human being, you survived infancy. Okay. So I, I really think we're just randomly here, but that being said, I don't think it's meaningless. I, you know, like while we're here, why not do the best that we can with what we have? I do believe that that's important and, um, pursue things that make you happy and try to make those around you happy. So, um, 
I may not have a very, very spiritual um, <laughs> understanding of why I'm here, but I am not upset that I'm here and I, I will do, you know, the best that I can with what I have. So I guess that's my answer to that question. I'm going to change the, not change the question, but I guess ask a follow-up uh, mm -hmm. that might perhaps be a better question um, or maybe just a different one. What is the ideal? What is the highest ideal that you aspire to? Okay, you know, I was thinking of Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs the other day, um, so it's interesting you ask this. Um, yeah, self actualization, right? It's at the very top. So you go through your life looking and i'm just going to put it i'm just going to put it in that context it's 1943 but it's still relevant um you have your shelter i'm lucky i have that right i have my meat i have relationships close friends um validation you know I've, I've gone through a point where that was really important to me but it's not and now i'm at a point in my life where um my job is something that gives me a lot of satisfaction because of what i can do for my students but I also see it as, okay, a way that I make the living. Um, my, what I can impart to my son is really my priority, but I really like now, you know, to figure out what ways can I make my own understanding of the universe better. So I, and I've actually, I've always been this way. Like I, sew, I play guitar, I play piano, I sing, I dance, you know, I am actually, uh, <laughs> I'm certified to to be a group fitness instructor. Like I, I'm like a master of, uh, or not, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none kind of person. Um, and I, and I love to just try new things, hobbies, but not for the take up time thing, but just so I can try something and learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. And that to me is part of that self actualization process. Like you're just seeing, well, how far can I reach with these things? And what, what, what new thing can I challenge myself with? So, um, I guess that's, I don't know if that's a good answer, but that's how much that's of an I'm intersection do you think it, it is? It, it just led me to another thing that I recently experienced myself. Uh, I attended a talk where I was asked a question about, I forget what the exact question was, but my answer was the pursuit of knowledge. And I think it might've been something like what's the highest ideal or what's the greatest ideal that you you try to live up to or that you want to uh, how much of an intersection do you think there is between my answer and yours where you, you describe the things that i would have or i thought of when i was thinking of that answer that mm -hmm. I, I want to learn and that's mm -hmm. what makes me happy and that's not to say that julie doesn't make me happy uh, but it, it's if you're talking about personal growth, it, it cannot be dependent on other people. And that's something she taught right. me, that you that's cannot right. depend on other people's happiness for your own. So if yeah, it's so my own we, well-being we that I'm trying to foster. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I think that is so important to to be OK with prioritizing yourself and your own well-being. Um, we are responsible for other people, sometimes either as parents or as spouses or significant others or children. But um, if we don't prioritize ourselves, then how, what good are we going to be to those people? Mm -hmm. And I really do believe that. 
And part of the things that make me happy are challenging myself with those new skills, let's say, right? So um, let's just take the aerobics instructor thing. Like if you looked at me, that's probably the last thing you'd think that I would do. But I, um, I started attending this cardio dance class, you know, several years ago, and it was just so fun. Right. And, um, my, it's my instructor saw something in me and she said, you know, you're good at this. Like, I bet you could teach this. Like I, I'm always have a hard time finding subs and do you think you'd be into it? I'm like, I would never be able to do this. Are you crazy? But then <laughs> I thought, okay, well I'm a teacher, so I know how to teach and how hard can it be to wear a little microphone and call out the moves before? Mm-hmm. Turns out it's hard, but um, but I had to, you know, I learned how to do that part. But I also legally to do that at the gym, I had to become certified. So I had to take this whole exercise science online course and go and take a test at FAU at the testing center and pass that test in order to be certified as an instructor, right? And that was. Um, that was quite a challenge because I hadn't studied for a test in such a long time. And this was stuff like, what do you do with your rotator cuff if there's an, you know, injury? I don't know any of the answers now. I'll be honest. (laughs) I crammed and I barely passed. Um, but, but I did it, you know, and that was like a huge source of pride for me to just be able to be like, okay, in addition to doing these cool things, I'm doing this too. And, um, that just makes me just feel like, okay, if I can push myself and do things, not only is it good for me, but it's a good example to mm-hmm. my son and, you know, makes me interesting. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. And of course I do take full credit for you being at the college <laughs> and I take full credit for some, I've been on so many hiring committees of people that are doing amazing things like, um, Barbara Sharp, I was on hers, Rachel McDermott, I was on Jai Reese's hiring committee. Um, I gave Zalman his first um, prep math job. So um, yeah, like I'll, I'll take credit for all of you guys. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all the blame will head your way as well when I decide the to blame do something too, Yes, I guess I could take both. I will take both. But you know, I understand that I also understand that I'm put on all these committees very thoughtfully as a as a Latina female, I, I bring in a wonderful diversity to any, any committee. So, so I've been on a lot of them, but I do, I do love hiring committees. Mm-hmm. All right. So the answer to this next question doesn't need to be poignant. It, it could be as insightful or as irreverent as you want it to be. Okay. And I'll give you the answer that a close friend gave me a while back, uh, as an example of something irreverent. And she okay. mentioned you should never trust a fart. <laughs> That's right. And I did not know what that meant. And she had to go into great detail to explain it. And she, you know, kept inching closer, pardon the pun, uh, to, to the explanation without you know, just say, coming out and saying it. And she said, Anurag, what happens when you fart? I don't know. You fart. And so she had to, in a very ladylike manner, uh, broach a, t- a topic that perhaps was not uh, kosher for polite conversation. So th- that's one end of the spectrum. Yeah. And then the other end of the spectrum is, well, as poignant as you want it to be. So the question is, if you had the attention of 500 people in a room, uh-huh. what would you say to them? Uh, presumably you have a half hour to say, so, or 
I, I don't like know. a little TED talk of sorts. Uh, again, it could be as irreverent as never trust a fart and you walk out, you drop your mic and you, <laughs> <laughs> you mic <just>, drop, <laughs> and then that's it. Oh my goodness. Well, do I know who these people are? Because my audience might, um, well, I guess the, I'll just answer it in this context. Okay. So I'll, I, of- I'll explain where the question came from. Uh, have you ever seen The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch? Oh, yes. I share that with my students. Mm-hmm. So th- yeah. that's where the idea came from, that if you're not necessarily giving a computer science lecture, even though he was a computer mm-hmm. science professor, the last lecture he gave had nothing to do with that. So the idea is not, I mean, right. I, I wanted to take, again, the, the the sad aspect of the question out that, okay, maybe, you know, this is the last right, lecture you're ever going to give. Right, uh, right. What do you say now? So if you have the attention of, I don't know, half of them are your previous students, some admin people, some random (laughs) people. college related. Well, maybe, okay. Some random people from Palm Beach County just walk in and it's an open forum. So let's put it that way. All right. No, yeah, I I, I definitely have something to say to a group of 500 people. Um, Before that, though, I like the never trust a fart. I always considered myself someone who, and no matter what my age, I have the um, sense of humor of a middle school boy. So fart humor will always make me laugh. And my son is at an age where we can just laugh. And the things we laugh at are just so ridiculous and would probably make some old ladies clutch their pearls. But you know what? Fart humor is always funny. <laughs> um, I, You know, this is going to sound so lame, I, or maybe not. But I would just tell him to vote in November. That's all I would say. Fair enough. Vote. Just vote. You know, you can you can interpret that any way you want, but I really feel like um, we we need to exercise that right. So no matter what the situation is in November, pandemic wise, if you need to put yourself inside of a bubble and and go vote somewhere, then please vote. Mail in ballot. I don't know how many people are are aware of this that are listening, but if if you aren't, you can. Vote by mail without having. Has that to... been okayed in Florida? Because I know that there's. Um, My stepdaughter you know... just got a, a notice in the mail saying, "Hey, you can request your vote by mail ballot here." Oh, that's right. You've always been able to do that here. Yeah. Um, in Florida, so, you can. I, yeah. I don't know. Sorry, Australia and Germany and Antigua and Barbuda, uh, or people from other states. I don't know if that's uh, permitted in your states or not. But yeah, in Florida, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure you can vote by mail. Right. In Oregon, um, everybody votes by mail. The whole state votes by mail. So I think there were some um, legislation type of movements in different states we're trying to make to make that, you know, the blanket mm-hmm. lets everyone vote by mail. And I think, you know, there's been roadblocks for that. Um, you know, I want to make sure that anyone who is disenfranchised has that opportunity to vote and I would drive them there if they needed it, like, or, or I would get their mail in ballot and give it to them and put a stamp on it. (laughs) So, um, I, I, I guess the way that I'm feeling right now and it's early June and I don't know when you're going to play this. Um, I know it takes you a few weeks. I might suggest that you post mine on my birthday, July 3rd. That's a Friday. Um, if you you know want to, but you know right now the situation as I see it, like when I and I don't like to watch the news a lot, but when I read what's happening or when I see what's happening, I really it, it's hard. It's hard to watch, and I don't 
think that we need to be in the situation. And I feel that if enough of us vote, and if I'm talking to 500 people down here in South Florida, I'm hoping that they'll vote the way that I would vote. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, which is the way Mark Fetterman would have voted. And I know that he was very explicit. So yeah, that's what I would do on a rug. I would tell him to vote. Uh, through some manner of, uh, of, I guess, fate, your episode is slated to come out on the 3rd of July. Oh, well, that's perfect. That'll be my birthday <laughs> present. I'm so excited then. That's awesome. Yeah. What else you got? Is I, that I it? I feel strange talking about myself. There's one other one, because you already answered uh, the title of the, of the episode. Um, yes. I feel strange talking about myself in the third person, but I, I'll read the question as it's written. Anurag doesn't like to share what questions he's going to add, ask ahead of time, but it's only human to let your mind wander. Share something you wouldn't have unless he asked you a question about it directly. Oh, okay. Um, I'm an open book, so I really, there's nothing I regret sharing in this interview at all. I'm trying to think of what you've asked me specifically. Maybe I'm a, I'm a little weary that I might have offended um, deeply religious people by um, declaring that I'm not deeply religious, but I'm not too worried about it. <laughs> you know, um, at my husband's funeral, I had people come up to me and saying all kinds of things, you know, and I don't know, I, I, people have to be uncomfortable going to the funeral and talking to a young pregnant wife who just lost her husband. That's just a weird Mm -hmm. uncomfortable thing to do. And I understand that. Um, so I was on the receiving end of a lot of awkward comments, you know, and some of them included, you're young, you'll meet someone else. And I'm like, okay, that might be true, but I don't want to hear that at my husband's yeah, that's funeral. You know? Very, very odd to say at that moment, maybe yes. a year or two years. I, I don't know what the, the appropriate amount of time is there, but uh, yeah, that's like odd. my best friend and I had a had talks shortly after Damien died and, um, and she told me, you know, yeah, you're going to meet someone again. And, you know, this wasn't the awkward one like this was. And then, and I told her, I don't know, Veronica, I don't know how I could possibly, you know, fall in love again after this. And she said, well, think of it as your heart. Like, if you have more than one child, you don't stop loving your first child. Like, your heart just grows when you have a second child or whatever. And then when I thought of it in that terms, I'm like, yeah, it's like your heart will grow. You know, and, and she was right, of course. Um, but but she was my best friend and she could talk to me like that. You know, there were, these were people who were my parents' friends sure. or, you know, people I didn't know very well. So, and then I had some colleagues who, um, told me that this is how Jesus, this is what God wanted, or this was God's plan, or, uh, this is a way for you to come to the church, you know? And, and those, those, those kinds of comments made me pretty uncomfortable because I didn't want to, tell them, yeah, no, <laughs> but, but I also understood where they were coming from. You know, I think people just don't know what to say. And, um, so I guess to answer your question, I, I know that religion can be a pretty, um, sensitive topic. So I hope that I haven't offended any listeners, but that's it. Otherwise, no, I don't regret anything else. I don't think, uh... I've spoken with a, a few people that are uh, th that lead their lives in a manner that aligns with their faith very, very closely. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I myself have had a contentious relationship with religion and the religious God, and I spoke with Mark about it a little bit. Uh, but I, I, at a very young age, had a slight bit of a of a religion problem, where you know I, I was told I went to an Irish Catholic school, so that again mm-hmm. was was an issue right off the bat, where you know they would get this box of these boxes of books for the library, and some of the books would just be left inside the box and tossed out, and I was like, what's wrong with those books? Are they you know, are they nudie books or bad books or, you know, books that we're not <laughs> supposed to read? And, you know, th- there were books by Immanuel Kant on and, and you know, Bertrand Russell and philosophers uh, right. that didn't necessarily get along with the religious crowd at the school too much. And then I would go home. So my parents, you know, never really, uh, they're very devout Hindus and my grandparents were mm-hmm. as well. And my entire family outside of perhaps me, I guess, um, they would always tell me, you know, dad worked so hard at school and he got all these prizes and he, he, was su- he became such a good engineer because he studied really hard because he prayed. Mm-hmm. And that last part was like, wait, so if I stop praying, you're telling me that my grades will go down? And, you know, when you're a child, you, you do these stupid experiments yes. or you do these silly experiments. So I, I, and I even wrote in my thesis about this, my advisor laughed and I wrote that, you know, there was a period of time where I prayed every night and I wanted skates and I didn't get skates. Yeah. And then I stopped praying <laughs> right. about it. And then, you know, it was like, so nothing bad happened. I still continue to get straight A's or I, I got five stars mm-hmm. in India and, I, my, my life went on the way that it was, that it was going and that mm-hmm. I, you know, I didn't gain peace or I didn't have a feeling of belonging that my parents did, you know, to the religious yeah. community or, you know, they would go to the temple and my ears would hurt because I, I would have a, a very bad headache from people ringing the bell all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, and my grandparents would say, you know, you have to ring it louder. You have to hit the bell even louder so God can hear you. It's right, like, no, right. Pataji, that makes my head hurt. Uh, and then on the academic side of things, I, I, as I was growing older in India, and even when I came to the United States, I would read things that were perhaps incendiary uh, to the religious crowd or to my parents for that matter. And they, they never really stopped mm-hmm. it because they understood that it was for school. Uh, but I shared with Mark a story of a, a, a nice, polite young lady. Well, maybe not polite, but she knocked a book I was reading out of my hand and threw yes, it in the trash. Yes, the yellow, the one who had, who enjoyed the yellow color, but then yes. disliked the title of the book. Hitchens, right? Was that yes. the Hitchens book you were reading? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so over time, I, I gained an appreciation for my parents who are very uh, religious but also find peace and comfort in their faith that when things mm-hmm. don't go right they're able to to go to that space and go to that community and, and find peace and happiness and contentment within it i don't but that doesn't mean that i need to you know be militant about it and tell other people no you need to not do that which is maybe what i would have done when i was younger uh, in, in undergrad or grad yeah. school but over, I guess, the course of the last few weeks, I have spoken with some very, I don't know how else to describe it, very devout people 
Mm-hmm. And uh, they seem equally interested to have the conversation, despite That's me right. having shared either my beliefs or having heard Mark <laughs> share his or now you. So I, I don't think, I'll say this. The people that do get offended, I don't want them subscribed to the podcast anyways. I hear what you're saying. If I, I can be saying. as irreverent you know, as I want to uh, yeah. be, those are not the people that I want to engage in conversation with. So, you know, you believe in what Absolutely. you want, but you let other people share their beliefs as well. That That's where I yeah, currently I think it's stand. It's about that open-mindedness, mm-hmm. and I appreciate you saying that. You know, I think I went on and on about who cares what other people think, but I think that that part of me that is like, oh, don't disappoint anybody or someone might think less of you like that person's still in me sometimes. So, um, so yeah, but you're right. And I was lucky in the fact that my, my dad was, is, he is, um, agnostic and he always challenged our beliefs. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I have a younger sister and she is quite a devout Catholic. She sings in the choir, sends her kids to Catholic school. So he got one of each, you know, he got one that turned out very devout and then he got me, (laughs) you know, and, um, and he, yeah. And he, he let us, he asked questions to challenge us to, to really think what, what did we think? And, um, and I appreciated that. So, and as a psychiatrist and as a, as a physician, he has had so many patients and, um, many of them have been religious and he's always encouraged his religious patients to rely and and fall on their religion as something for comfort, you know, despite him not being that person. So, um, that's why I said earlier that when I went through the first stages of the grieving process, I, I almost wished that I had been, um, you know, everyone's faith journey is very different, but I, I wish that I had that, that faith where immediately I pictured him in heaven hugging my grandparents or something like that, you know, but you know, <laughs> so no, you've asked some really great questions. Last one. What would you title this podcast? If it was yours for the next 10 seconds, you can take longer. If it was mine. For yeah. The next so 10 if you, seconds, it were, well, it, if you yours. were naming the podcast or maybe it's still mine, someone said, well, is it your podcast or mine? So then I, I, I figured I had to assign ownership before I asked that question, but yeah, uh, no, I mean, you've asked me to, um, name my own, my own episode. So I think that that's my, my ownership of it, but this is your podcast. And I'm thinking of it as a whole, um, podcast, including everything that you have done and all the people that you have spoken to. So I wouldn't dare try to name it something that I try to take ownership of. It's yours. I mean, I, I think your current title is certainly witty and I, and I, I like it and I think it might invite people into the podcast because they might wonder, Oh, what, what is this about? Right. Um, but I'm also kind of a pun nerd. So like, uh, I don't know, like, are, do you pronounce your name? Katyal? Katyal. Yeah. Katyal. I mean, it can uh, be pronounced as however you, you want it to be pronounced. Okay. Well, you know, I, I for the sake of a pun, I will sacrifice the pronunciation. Would you? Of my name. Would you? I yes. mean, would you forgive me if I made your podcast title a ridiculous pun? Something Please. like "Read Katyal about it" or "Katyal the wonderful <laughs> things" or something like that. That's right? awesome. Yeah, like Katyal. That's amazing. Of the I, I would have never thought of that. Well, there you go. Take the "all" in Katyal <laughs> and then just make it something awesome. That's what I would do. <laughs>
But thank you I like, for the insight. And you're welcome. Um, I do like I need a title. I, I must say that I do like that one. That came. I, I wish I could say that any amount of thought went into it. I uh, was opening an account on Anchor and, you know, I thought that I could just open an account and later on figure out all these details. <laughs> and they said, no, name of, you know, your email, your password. And then immediately, uh, what is this t- podcast about? <laughs> I have no idea. I haven't even recorded the first <laughs> episode. And then what is the title going to be? Oh, I, okay. need I need a, a title. title. And well, it, it came out of, I don't want to figure it out. Let me just ask other people to do it for me. Well, you know, so, sometimes those are the best. Yeah. Mark gave me more credit than I deserve. things get done. Well, you know, sometimes that's exactly how things are meant to be. And that's the best way. Like, yeah. So uh, I think that's good. Even if you didn't think about it, that's how it turned out. And it's awesome. Thank you. So I say keep it or make a pun out of your name using the word all phase two of the project shall include that. <laughs> well thank you very very much thank you for spending your afternoon with me i do appreciate it you're so welcome and thank you for reaching out i'm so happy to be part of it and like i said i've enjoyed very much listening to um, my colleagues and i look forward to listening to future episodes um and i hope you're trying to get a hundred of these right it's starting to be quite daunting. So I, I, I was trying to stick to people that I really, really didn't know. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that, I, I, I doubt that the beard helps. Um, even if people don't know what I look like, it, it's been a little bit on the difficult side to say, why do you want to talk to me? Um, so it, it's, it's been difficult, but I, I've truly enjoyed the people that I've been able to get so far. Well, that's great. And I know that, you know, on a personal note of yours, you're trying to get to know people better. Um, but as listeners, especially from my selfish point of view, there may be people you know well that I don't. And um, if you started interviewing some of the people, yeah, like to start interviewing some of your colleagues, the person next door to you, you know, like some of us might want to know these kinds of things about them so then i know that changes the whole point of your podcast trying to get to know people you don't know well but i i, I really wish people wouldn't think that or say that because there is no point okay then <laughs> the, the, the point was I, I honestly people that you know well. I, I feel like people are ascribing i feel like people are ascribing too much preparation or, or too much <laughs> forethought to this there has right. been none. Uh, okay. I went into it, you know, primarily as as a couple of things. Uh, you know, I wanted to get to know people that maybe I didn't know existed at Palm Beach State. So, hey, let me you know get to know these people. Second, I have mentioned before, I'm quite scared by the prospect of having conversations with people I don't know. So it mm-hmm. gets me out of my shell and it gets me better at talking to people I, that are strangers to me. And then third was the, the, the pursuit of knowledge angle where I knew nothing about sound engineering and putting together, you know, a podcast or what the hell do you do with a mic? What kind of cables do you right. need? So the, the, right. the 12-year-old boy came out and said, ooh, I get to play with new toys if I go down this path. Uh, but outside yes. of that, I, I really wish people wouldn't think or take away that any amount of preparation or planning went into this. <laughs> and I know that that you know you've 
said that in some of your previous episodes, and and I I can appreciate that absolutely. As far as the pursuit of knowledge, I I totally think that's amazing. You know, get yourself out there as a podcaster, learn how it works. That's great. And I think you may not have thought of this explicitly, but by talking to us, right, your colleagues that you may not know very well, let's say, and trying to talk to people that are feel more comfortable about them. You've made us comfortable enough by sharing our stories to kind of share things that we probably wouldn't share with randoms and mm-hmm. conversations that, you know, a faculty meeting or something like that. So, um, so you're actually quite good at getting us to really get in deep inside ourselves. So, um, so I'd say that's, that's a real win of the podcast, even if it was something that was unintended. So just keep doing what you're doing. And my only advice is don't, I guess, start interviewing perhaps some people that you think you know well, because those of us listening might love to know those people better too. I will keep that in mind. And now uh, I will start annoying even more people. now. That's right. Just keep annoying them. I'm sure most people are more than happy to participate. If they're not, whatever. You never want them anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your afternoon, and thank you again for spending Saturday or Sunday afternoon with me. Oh, you're welcome. You have a wonderful afternoon too, you and well. I look forward to listening to your next episode. Take care. Have a nice day. Okay. You too. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Luli. Here's a little sneak peek from Matt Clauza's interview next week. I, I think professional Matt in, in uh, this is so bizarre to me, I'm sorry, but professional, you know, I, I think I, I, I'm very proud of new Matt. I'm very proud of, of the things that I'm able to accomplish. Um, you know, but there still is this kind of, you know, I can't believe I've I've come this far, um, and my self esteem is is low to the point where um, any success I have, I very often feel like I'm some kind of imposter. Until next time, for another eighty-five times, take care. <laughs>